Welcome to the First E Podcast, where you can find sermons, messages, encouragement, and hope in a world of uncertainty and fear. May the God of peace fill you with love and hope, and may the hope of God overflow into the world. Good morning. It's good to see you here today. And it's good to see those, well, I can't see you, but you're at home, maybe watching online the service. It's good to see you as well. Hey, I wanted to encourage you that, uh, you know, if you haven't come down yet to the service, we have room for you in the three services, and I uh, just encourage you to come. Uh, if you feel like it's a safe choice for you, we enjoy being together, seeing each other's faces, and uh, opening God's Word together here in the sanctuary. And if you're at home and you need to be home, that's also fine. And But we just want you to know that there is room if you want to come. Well, it's good to see you guys who are here this morning. It's always it just... I got to say hi to most of you, not you guys. You snuck in. I guess I was somewhere else. So, hello. (laughs) Um, We are in the book of Genesis, and we're going to pray and get into God's Word in just a moment here. So, uh, let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you very much for the time we have to gather as your family, to sing your praises, and to open your Word. We pray that your Spirit might speak to our hearts directly with what you have to say to us. We pray that we might be open to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So, talking about Genesis, the theme of the whole book is embracing the call of God. God speaks directly to many people, and they have an opportunity to respond to the call of God. And today the message is family conflict and the presence of God. So, in Genesis, there's a lot of family conflict that goes on. Uh, which is, uh, you know, happens in lots of families. And, you know, is God present when (laughs) there's all this conflict going on? What does it mean to have God be present in your family, even if there's conflict? So here's a few questions you could ask that go along with today's message. Um, You know, what if my dad let me down? What if uh, my mom let me down? What if God let me down? The reason why I'm asking those questions is I think Jacob asked himself these questions as he was uh, living his life, that his mom let him down, his dad. I think he felt like God let him down. And so we're going to go into the story and see what's happening in the life of Jacob. So we're going to reach back to last week's message just a little bit so we understand what's going on. Genesis 28, verse 15, God promises his presence to Jacob. 28, 15 says, oops. God says to Jacob, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised for you. And these are God's words to Jacob. He's giving him promises, and the biggest promise is that he will be with him wherever he goes and bring bring him back, and that he will fulfill his promises to Jacob. Now, that's quite a promise, God's promise of presence to Jacob wherever he goes. Remember, Jacob at first said this this particular spot is super holy. Well, when he leaves, God is going with him. That's God's promise. That's an amazing promise. So next is uh, Jacob has this impossible prayer that he throws up to God. And this is in chapter 28, verse 20. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way, 
that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I can come again to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And all of that that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. So Jacob takes God at his word, God's promise. He takes him at his word and he's, he's serious about his commitment. He talks about uh, tithing. Means that Jacob is going to take things that belong to him and he's going to give a tenth of them to God because he's going to acknowledge that God has blessed him and he's committed to God. And a lot of times a concrete, uh, a concrete action like giving of what you have to honor God um, shows the depth of commitment more than just, just words do. And I don't mean that you buy God's commitment or buy God's blessing, but I think you know what I'm getting at. When you concretely do something, you volunteer to show up and help, or you donate to something, or you give, or you, you um, that kind of a thing, that concrete action uh, speaks volumes about how seriously you take God. And Jacob is willing to do that. But we noticed last week that he had this prayer that was pretty much impossible. He said, God, if you could just bring me back to my father's house in peace, that's what I really want. Well, if you weren't with us, haven't read the story, you might wonder, well, what's the big deal? Well, this is the big deal. Jacob's mom, Rebecca, had talked him into disguising himself as his brother and going into his father's tent, Isaac's tent. Isaac was blind and taking advantage of his father's blindness, pretending to be his brother so that he could steal the blessing. That's what happened. Uh, that kind of counts as a, a relationship stressor. If you're going to take advantage of your father's blindness so that you can fool him, so you can get something that doesn't belong to you, well, that causes problems in a family. And that's why Jacob is praying, God, if I could just go back and things could be put right, if, my fam- if, ha- if I could have my family back together again, that's what I really pray for. Well, realistically, that seems like an impossible prayer, doesn't it? Like, how, how is that going to happen? But he prays it. So we need to notice these things because as you come into the, the text that we're looking at this morning, if you forget those things, the rest of it, it isn't, doesn't have the same emotional impact. We need to understand that Jacob who left home so his brother wouldn't kill him, has now met God, who has promised to be with him. And Jacob is ready to be committed to God and to see what God does. He's ready to be blessed by God. And then the events happen that that come up in chapter 29. So first, the first thing is there's a meeting at a well. Happens a lot in the Bible, meeting at the well. Chapter 29. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. And he looked and he saw a well in the field. And behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well, the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large. And when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone off the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back into its place over the mouth of the well. They had a local custom that all of the shepherds would gather first and then they would remove the rock, water the sheep, put the rock back. Um, people think the reason for that, well, why is there a rock on top of the well in the first place? Well, what does it keep out? Keeps out all the sand and the dust and the debris. So their idea was, we'll take the rock off for everybody and then put it back. That's their custom. Keep that rock off as little as possible. Put it back on. Verse 4, Jacob said to them, my brothers, where do you come from? And they said, we're from Haran. And he said, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, we know him. 
And he said, is it well with him? Is he still alive? This is his uncle. And they said, it is well with him. And Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. And he said, behold, it is still high day. It's not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go. Pasture them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together. The stone is rolled from the mouth of the well, and then we will water the sheep. Now this gives you some insight into Jacob's personality. Uh, How long has he spent at this well? Ten minutes. And what's he doing? You guys are doing it all wrong. Okay, This this is a better system. And what do they say to him? You know, ah, thanks for the advice, stranger. You know, but... Here comes Rachel, and he finds out that he's, his cousin is coming, and this is the one person his mom said he could trust. Now, Jacob, his brother Esau, wanted to kill him, and his mother, Rebekah, said, the one place you'll be safe is with family. You can trust my brother Laban. Go to him. Lo and behold, he ends up at this well. Now, this is not just any well, right? This is the same well that his mom, Rebecca, went to. This is where his mom grew up. You got that? I, I know a lot of names went, were thrown out there, but Laban is his mom's brother. So Rebecca and Laban were brother and sister. This is where she grew up. She came down to this well and met Abraham's servant, who was going to get a wife for Isaac. So <coughs> at this well, this is where his mom essentially has marital arrangements made so that she meets his dad. This is why Jacob exists, right? Because his mom came to this well. Well, here he is at the same well, and he's got to be thankful that God led him to the same well. And here comes this beautiful girl, Rachel. (laughs) While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, that phrase is going to show up three times in this small section, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone away from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud, and Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that Rebekah's son, he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. So her father is Laban. Verse 13, as soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, surely you are my bone and my flesh, and he stayed with him a month. And so out of all the people he could meet, he meets the one person his mom said he could trust, and he meets Rachel. And Laban greets them with a big kiss and a hug. Actually, the story of Jacob and Laban, it starts with a kiss, and then it will end with a kiss. The storyteller, you know, it's like Princess Bride. There's kissing. Are you okay with that? And so there it is. There's kissing involved, and he greets him, stays with him a month. Sorry, I've got this tickle that maybe I should just pause a moment here. Isn't it frustrating when you have that and you can't make it go away? It's just sitting there. <clears throat> so, 
He stays with him a month. Have you ever had a relative stay at your house a month? Hey, it's been great having them here. I mean, you know, instead of just staying a few days or a week, they've been here a month. It's great. So he's there a month. Um, and then something shifts. Verse 15, then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now, this kind of puts a, a clang into the relationship. Laban has said, we're the same bone and flesh. We are family. Let me give you a big hug and a kiss. And after a month, you know you have to earn your way here, right? Let's make some arrangements for your employment and for you to get paid something. I mean, it might be logical, but it kind of makes it feel a little less family-like. Here's what's going on. We find out from Scripture that Laban really wants to become wealthy and highly values being wealthy. Now, remember, when Abraham's servant had come and met Rebekah, Jacob's mom, what did he come with? Camels and servants and silver and gifts. And when Rebekah decided to leave with him and go marry Isaac, he left behind a lot of wealth. You want to know why Laban ran down to the well to meet Jacob? Man, look at all the stuff my dad got when my sister Rebekah was married off to this family. I wonder what I'm going to get. Well, what did he get? He got Jacob. And that's it. And so there needs to be some sort of arrangement where Laban will benefit. Now, verse 16 says, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. I'm going to pause there and just talk about this a little bit. So the name Leah means cow, and the name Rachel means you or sheep. And uh, that might strike us as weird because in America, it is really never a good idea to nickname a woman cow. It just it doesn't translate well, okay? But people use animal nicknames all the time. Just in our culture, we don't choose cow. You know, I just finished reading For Whom the Bell Tolls. And the main character, the woman he loves, he calls her rabbit all the time. Little pet name, rabbit. So people do that kind of thing. So don't be thrown off by that. However, it caused me to really think about the names that Laban chose for his daughters. Because he likes to be wealthy, and what is it he does for a living? He's a rancher, and he has a lot of what? Cows and sheep. There's a possibility that Laban thinks, you know, if I name my daughters cows and sheep, which is what I want, maybe I'll get more of them. If that's possible, just because of the man's character. I'm not saying it's the way it is, but it makes me think, it makes you wonder. Now, it says that Leah's eyes were weak. Now, when you translate words into English, I mean, it can be difficult when you choose a word because, like, in English, if you say somebody's eyes are weak, there's no positive meaning to that, right? It's just bad. Well, what if you chose a word like soft? Leah's eyes were soft. Doesn't that sound different? What if you said Leah's eyes were delicate? which is weak, but it's different. 
And this word here, and you can look at other translations, sometimes words are difficult to translate, could mean something actually positive. And I think it does. I don't think the author is saying Leah was ugly, Rebecca was beautiful. I think what the author is saying is this. Leah had beautiful eyes, but Rachel, man, what a knockout. I think that's what's being said. Leah had her quality. She has beautiful eyes, very delicate. But Rachel, phew, where, where do I start? I think that's what is being communicated here. And this happens sometimes in families, right? I've done counseling with um, different ladies before who have said this exact thing. They have said something along the lines of, well, my sister is the pretty one. And they feel that as a part of their identity, that comparison. And people can compare themselves to their brother or sister all the time. Well, he's the smart one. He's the successful one. She's the athletic one. She's the musical one. And you can compare. And this very much was a comparison that the sisters felt. Leah felt like, well, Rachel, she's the pretty one. And it affects the story that we're going to read. So here we go. Uh, so he had two daughters. The older was Leah, the younger Rachel. Verse 18, Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. And Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her. So this is a young man. He's found the woman that he loves. God has promised to be with him. God has promised to bless him. He is with the one person his mom said he could trust. And he's like, he doesn't see it coming, does he? Okay. I think part of him resented his dad. What I tried to do is put myself in the story and ask myself, how would I feel? So he had a positive discussion with his dad. His dad, Isaac, did an amazing thing back in chapter 28. Even though Jacob had used Isaac's blindness against him and had disguised himself and stolen something and fooled him, his father was able to still bless and pray for his son. And Isaac told Jacob, may the blessing of Abraham go with you, and I'm praying for you. Now, that's amazing that a father so hurt could pray a blessing over their child. And it is amazing, but I think... For Jacob, what would he start thinking about? You know, Dad, it would have been a lot easier here if you'd sent me away with something. I mean, he and Mom sort of tried to dress up the whole, um, we love you and you're going to go find a wife and it's, it's your relatives and this will be a great trip. But what was the real reason he was sent away? His brother wanted to kill him because of the, his deception. And so he gets prayed over and gets some advice, but he doesn't get anything to take with him. When he arrives at Laban's house, it's just him. That's why he has to work these seven years. Do you see that? Because his dad didn't give him any resources. Now, at the moment, he doesn't care. He's happy. God is with me. I met her at the well. This is where my mom met the servant. And it's all arranged. And I can work seven years. That's fine. I'm young. She's young. This is fantastic. He doesn't see it coming. So then we go to the next part of the story, which is a wedding surprise. Verse 21, Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. 
So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. Now, if you've never read this story before, you might not notice, but there's an odd thing here. Now, what is that? Who has he been working seven years for? Rachel, who goes into the wedding tent? Leah? Well, <laughs> what is going on here? So, verse 25, in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Now, this can be funny. You can read it and say, oh, that's funny. You know, how could he be fooled? Well, you know, this is a week-long wedding ceremony. Uh, what do people do at week-long wedding ceremonies? They drink some wine. And that can cloud your what? Oh, thank you, my son. It can cloud, uh, I don't know, a lot of things. I'm not saying he was actually roaring drunk. I'm just saying they drink wine at weddings. And, and what time of day was it? Nighttime. How long has this young man been thinking of this night? Seven years. So he goes into this tent and finds a woman, and it's dark. And this is how this happens. And in the morning, we can laugh at it, but I tell you, there's nothing funny about this. Nothing funny. How would he feel? Well, I think he's feeling a lot of things. He is the one person his mom said he could trust deceived him. He didn't see it coming. And I think he's angry at his mom. She said, I could trust her brother. And look at what he did. I wouldn't even be in this mess if my dad had given me some resources. I wouldn't have had to work seven years. I would just say, here's your present. Here's my wife. He's mad at his parents. Who else has let him down? God has let him down. You know, how could this happen? How did this all get messed up? Who else is in on this in order for it to work? Leah? You think this might affect their marriage? Oh, for at least a month, right? No, this is, how do you get over these kinds of betrayals? How do you get over this? What do you think this reminds him of in his own life? He took advantage of his father's blindness and pretended to be somebody else so he could get what didn't belong to him. What just happened? Laban and Leah took advantage of his blindness. Leah pretended to be somebody else and took away what belonged to him, his wife, Rachel. The same, it's not so funny now, is it, Jacob? And it has come into his family that he's looked forward to building for seven years. And there's a lot, you talk about, <laughs> this is kind of funny. I, I, this just popped into my head, but um, I teach junior hires and high schoolers. Um, I teach high schoolers Bible at Hosanna. Sometimes I do a Shakespeare unit. And I was teaching a Shakespeare unit um, on Romeo and Juliet with seventh and eighth graders. And I was showing all of the emotions that Juliet goes through in one scene. And she goes through like eight different strong, passionate emotions in one, you know, 15-minute period of time. And when I laid all of that out, one of the junior high boys said, that's impossible to feel that many things all at once. <laughs> Which all the girls in the class were like, 
what are you talking about? I, this happens to me every day at school. <laughs> I start off, you know, down and then I'm up and then down and up. <laughs> so, but Jacob is devastated and betrayed. So he asks his, you know, his uncle, what's up with this? Laban says, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Ooh. Well, this hits home. This is irony because Jacob is the younger. And Laban is saying, look, in our culture, the older gets what comes to them first, not the younger. And you might wonder, why would Laban even do this? Well, again, what do we find out about Laban? He's really into what? Wealth. Now, way back in chapter 29, this may have just blown right through your brain. It says that when Jacob met Laban, and Laban gives him a big hug and a kiss and says, we are the same bone and flesh, it says that Jacob told him all these things. Well, what are all these things? We don't know. It could have been the falling out with his parents. It could have, he could have explained why his mom sent him there. Um, it could have been his meeting with God, God's promise of blessing on him. So Jacob might, I mean, Laban might be thinking, man, if God has promised his blessing on this young man, I need to trap this young man here in my house so that the blessings come to me. Because if he works for me, I get the blessings. And you might think, well, nobody would be that cruel or conniving. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All you have to do is watch a show on Netflix, and it's like, man, that's cruel and conniving. <laughs> but um, I think this was his motivation here. And verse 27, he says, Complete the week with this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Women, how would, your li- how would you like your dad to speak to you about your marriage in that language? Well, Jacob, finish your week with Leah, and then you can have a week with Rachel and marry her too. He doesn't even say her name. Finish the week with this one, and then you can have that one. Wow, what a dad. How do you think they felt, Leah? and Rachel, about their dad, about each other. Where was Rachel? I, you have to use your imagination. How come she isn't saying anything? What was going on in this family? You come to, you come to see that that kiss that Laban gives to Jacob, this is a godfather kiss, okay? It comes with some requirements, you know? It's like, you come into my house on the day of my daughter's wedding, you know? You're going to join this family. You need to understand there's a few obligations involved with that. (laughs) Okay. If you marry into the mafia, can you just leave? No. If you want to see what that's like, you can watch the Godfather movies. No, it's not that simple. Jacob is trapped. If he divorces Leah, who does he lose? Rachel? If he tries to leave, what what resources does he have? Just him. Well, what does Laban have? He has his whole ranch and all his ranch hands and all of her you know, horses and camels and everything. He, can't, he is trapped. And this is his life. This is where he's at. And so Laban gave him um, 
Oh, Jacob did so, completed her week, and then Laban gave him his daughter, Rachel. Isn't that awful? He completed his week with his first wife, and then he got Rachel. Laban gave the female servant, Bilhah, to his daughter, Rachel, to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. He loved one sister more than the other sister. How do you think that's going to go? One of the sisters knowingly deceived him on the night of his wedding. How do you think that's going to pan out over the years? This is just, it's shockingly horrible. And you might be wondering, Pastor Steve, is it okay to marry two sisters? Well, the Bible lifts up the value of having one wife. You will find that people who marry more than one wife actually find trouble (laughs) for themselves. But this specific thing, later on in the law, when Moses comes, is forbidden. You cannot marry two sisters. If you're going to have two wives, they can't be two sisters. Isn't that just common sense? Okay. Who in their right mind would marry two sisters? That is the dumbest move you could possibly make, right? So um, the answer is no. Here's the encouragement. You might be thinking, I don't even know why this stuff is in the Bible. I don't understand why this story is in here. Give me people I can admire. Well, here's why it's encouraging. Remember the title of the message, Family Conflict in the Presence of God? All families have conflict at some point. And please listen to me when I say this, because I don't mean maybe what you might think I mean. But you want to be unhappy? Get married. You want to be miserable? Have children. Now, I'm married and I have kids. And my wife is a blessing. My kids are a blessing. But I tell you, when you open up your heart to love your spouse and to love your kids, you open yourself up to a lifetime of hurt. And I don't mean your lifetime is only hurt. I don't mean that. Please don't think I mean that. What I mean is there is no hurt like that which occurs in a marriage, and there is no hurt like that which can occur between a parent and a child. And that's the way it is. It just is. It doesn't mean you can't experience blessing, that you can't experience love. It doesn't mean that you can't, but that, if you talk to any parent who is honest about marriage and raising kids, they will tell you, yeah, there's a lot of truth in that. It's not the only truth. It's just part of it, part of the story. Why is this story encouraging? This family was a mess, and yet God was present in this family. Jacob may not have felt the presence of God, but he was there. And God keeps all of his promises and was working in the life of Jacob and the life of his wives and his kids. You know, there are uh, some families that are, um, you can see the conflict just in the makeup of the family. Because, you know, maybe there's a husband and wife, but it's not the first marriage or the second marriage. And they have kids, but this child is from both of them. And then that child is from the mom and the man she was with before. And then this child is from the husband and the woman he was with before. And they're a family. And you can see that... The past conflicts are right there. None of that means at all that God is not present in this family or that God can't bless them or that God doesn't have a plan for them. And I find that really encouraging. Do you know what this family becomes? The nation Israel. God did not look at this family and say, whoa, that is too messed up for me. A man who's married to sisters, which you shouldn't even do, and then there's two other women involved and all this conflict. I'm going to go look for a better family, a more moral family, a more kind family. No. God says, I can work with that. I can be present with this family. I can bless them. 
And I find that really encouraging. Now, we're going to look at kids. So children are the center of the story here. Um, if you were to map out the whole story of Jacob, like from when the twins are born and the conflict they have and the conflict with Laban and then the kids, and then the other things that are going to happen with Jacob in his life, you will find that having the kids is in the center of the story. And isn't that what life is like for those who have kids? Kids are the center. You ever seen the movie Parenthood? Somebody asks, aren't, aren't we ever done being parents? What's the answer? No. You're never done being a parent. And kids are the center. They become such a focus for your life. And it's a blessing. It's a wonderful thing. So let's look at the kids. Um, I want to point out something. Is in verse, chapter 29, verse 31, it says, the Lord saw. And then in chapter 30, verse 1, it says, Rachel saw. And then in chapter 30, verse 9, it says, Leah saw. Do you see how the writer has organized this? The Lord saw, Rachel saw, Leah saw. And then here are the kids. So verse 31, chapter 29, it says, When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And so God has a heart for those who are oppressed, those who are unloved, those who are marginal. He has a heart for them. And he opens Leah's womb, and she starts having kids first. She's the one who's unloved, right? And he opens her womb because God has a heart for those people. And she has a kid. Now, let's look at the names of the kids. So her firstborn son is named Reuben, and his name means see a son. And then she says, God has seen my misery in my marriage and given me a son. Maybe my husband will love me now. Then she has another boy, Simeon. Simeon means to hear. And she says, God has heard how miserable it is being married, and surely my marriage will be good now. And then she has a third son, Levi, which means to join or connect. And she says, surely, after having three boys, my husband finally will connect with me emotionally, finally. There is just a depth of sadness in the naming of these children. These kids are named because of the marital conflict. Surely God has seen my misery in my marriage. Surely God has heard me when I talk about how awful my marriage is. Surely God will make my husband connect with me. These are the names of the boys. Isn't that sad? That's such a sad reason to name kids. Then she comes to Judah, and this is interesting. It, when you look at it in the scripture, it says, Then she named her fourth son Judah, which means praise him. And all that stuff about making my husband do this and all that kind of stuff, it's not present. She just praises God for her son Judah. And she's come to a place where she is just thankful to have given birth to a child. And many marriages are right right here in this spot. Their, their actual marriage to each other has a lot of conflict, but they have children, which are the center. And coming to the place where you just understand that your children are a blessing from God and that that needs to be your focus can be life-altering. To the place where you can actually praise God for what he has given rather than focusing on the only thing you don't have. And a lot of our life has lived like that, right? Thankful for what you do have, not focusing so much and getting bitter about what you don't have. Because during the course of your entire life, are you always going to not have something? <laughs> yes. You're always going to not have something. But focus on what you do have. Praise him. Now in chapter 30, verse 1 and 2, it says this. When Rachel saw 
that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. Ha, what a shocker that is, right? She envied her sister. She's probably envied her sister since she was three, okay? She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Well, okay, here's Jacob's response. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? What's Jacob saying to his wife, Rachel, who he loves? Are you kidding me? I'm doing my part. Okay. It's up to God. I'm not God. And I sense in his angry response that he's also angry at God. This is up to God, and I don't know what he's doing. Was he asleep that night when they switched you and Leah? What was he doing? He promised to be with me. It doesn't seem like he was. Now, my family, my, my family is just a mess of conflict. Thanks a lot, God. You promised to be with me and bless me. I don't see it. And now his anger just shoots out at the woman he loves, Rachel, and you know, we can feel let down by our mom, feel let down by our dad, betrayed by someone we're supposed to trust. We didn't see it coming. They betray us. Our, whole, our legs are knocked out from under us. And we wonder, where is God in the middle of this? He promised to be present with me. Well, they keep having kids, okay? So, Rachel takes her maid and says to Jacob, why don't you have kids surrogate children, essentially? And so they do. So Jacob has kids by the surrogate. Uh, Dan is the name that she gives the boy. Justice. Maybe I'll have justice with my sister. And then she names the next boy Naphtali. Struggle. I'm going to struggle with my sister and win. Again, sad reasons to name children. Your name is Dan because I want justice over my sister. Your name is Naphtali because I'm fighting with my sister and I'm going to win. That's what your name means. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Then it says that Leah saw that she has ceased bearing children. So she takes her maid and gives her maid to Jacob. And they have some kids. So Gad means fortune. Asher means happiness. I don't know. That name seems like a breath of fresh air. Just, I wish everybody could be happy. Oh, so do they. <laughs> okay. Now, the language changes from seeing to hearing. And in verse um, 17, it says, God listened to Leah. And she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. And so she gives her, her son the name Issachar, which means to be hired, like you'd hire someone to do a job. And you might wonder, why in the world would somebody name their child Hired like hired for a job. Well, here's the story. So Reuben is about six years old. He goes out, he's wandering around, and he finds some mandrakes. Now, mandrakes are considered at that time like a fertility drug, help you have kids. So Reuben brings them home. Who's his mom? Leah. So Leah has those, right? Oh, thank you, Reuben. They now, you know, she has them. Puts them up high. I don't know what they do if kids get them, so puts them up high. Rachel notices that and says, oh, dear sister of mine, could I have some of those mandrakes because I'd like to have a child? And what does dear sister say? No. Isn't that cruel? No, sister, I'm happy that you don't have kids. Maybe Jacob will love me. 
And what happens next gives you a real insight into the family. Rachel's, well, what Leah says is, I tell you what, I'll give you some of this fertility drug if you let me sleep with Jacob tonight. Excuse me? Rachel's going to let you sleep with your own husband? What, what has happened in this family that Jacob is only with Rachel now? Is that why she's not having kids? What, do you see what's, how odd this is? And Rachel, who really wants kids, says, deal. You can sleep with Jacob tonight. Give me the fertility drug. Well, Rachel takes the fertility drug. Nothing happens. What happens to Leah? She has a kid. And so she has Issachar hired. I hired my husband. And then she has another boy, Zebulun, means prince. She has a daughter named Dinah. And then it, not, God did not just listen to Leah. God listens to Rachel in verse 22. And this is where the whole story turns. This is the turning point of the story. God listens to Rachel. Verse 22, then God remembered Rachel. Now that's a significant statement. Back when we went through the story of Noah and the ark, that is the turning point of that story. Then God remembered Noah. And here, that same language, then God remembered Rachel. And God listened to her and opened her womb. And she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, may the Lord add to me another son. Now, here again, this is another odd name to give a child. Joseph is a great-sounding name, but what it means is add another one. So, you know, someone asks you, hey, what's your name? Well, my name is add another one because my mom was hoping to get another boy also. So your name means add another boy? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Do you see how that's kind of an odd name to give someone? And it's not a bad name. It's just different you know, to name somebody, hey, I wish for another one. So she has a kid. At this moment, everything changes. Verse 25, as soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own home and country. I'm ready to leave. Here's something to think about. Jacob has absolutely no evidence at all that he's going to be welcomed peacefully back home. But the way in which God has been working in his family has convinced him that God is present with him. And he remembers that God promised to take him home. And so he's ready to leave. He's ready to go home. Now, we're going to talk about that part next week. It's just too big of a story. But this is a good place to end here because there's no huge evidence for Jacob that this will happen. He just must trust that God will be with him, and make it okay. And he has seen God listen to his wife Leah and God listen to his wife Rachel, and he has experienced the blessing of children. And I think that God is working on his heart so they can see what he does have rather than focusing only on how people have mistreated him and on what he doesn't have. And that is a huge change in someone's life. When someone moves from just blaming everybody for all the awful things they did to them and moves towards thanking God for all the ways in which he's, he's working in their life, that's a huge change. That's a turning point in somebody's life. So let's just talk about this a little bit. Um, here are three things. So knowing that this will help 
you in your life, knowing that God is present in the midst of your family conflict. If you are um, not getting along with your spouse, if you're divorced from your spouse, if there's tension with a, a child in your family, if um, you're not speaking to part of your family, if someone has betrayed you, if someone has done you wrong, let you down, that does not mean that God is not present. God is present in your family, even in the middle of conflict, and that is reassuring. Because God is not limited by our wisdom and our strength and our knowledge and our righteousness. God does amazing things. Next point, pray your impossible prayer. Jacob did. Pray it. Now, I am not like a health and wealth preacher who will say, just, just pray the prayer and it'll happen. No, that, it doesn't work that way. You tell God what you want, the desire of your heart. But God is God. He's wiser than you. He knows more than you. He understands the ins and outs of different things. But why would you not tell him the desire of your heart? He is your father who loves you. Tell him. And then the last thing is pray for a turning point in your life. Jacob experienced one here. Maybe you've experienced a turning point in your life already, and you could, you could stand up here and tell us about how it happened. But if you haven't, pray for that moment where everything becomes different between you and God. It doesn't mean all problems get solved, but everything becomes different. Now, I'm going to go to the end of Jacob's life here in chapter 48. It's important for you to understand that this is what he says when he's old and about to die. So this is what Jacob says, Genesis 48. He's talking to Joseph and his two grandsons. And he says, the God before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them, let my name be carried on and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Do you hear what he's saying? God has been my shepherd my whole life. Even when I didn't see it, even when I didn't know it, even when I was mad at him, he was my shepherd my whole life. The angel of God went before me and blessed me, even when I didn't see it even when I didn't recognize the blessing that was given. And I pray, Jacob is saying, I pray for my grandsons that they will understand that God is their shepherd, that they can trust him. Out of all people in the world, they can trust God as their shepherd, and he has blessings in store for them. This is something spoken by Jacob to his grandkids right before he dies. I find that very powerful because if you look at his life, how many of us would wish to have his family? Oh, that sounds fun. Marry two sisters, two women on the side, you know, 13 kids. They don't get along. Fantastic. No, but God was present in his life. Now, we're going to get ready for the Lord's table. And to do that, I'm going to use the word shepherd. So those of you who are getting sleepy because you're breathing in your, your warm air, it's like you're in Georgia. You know why everybody's sleepy in Georgia? Because the air is just like what you're breathing. It's, it's hot, it's moist, it puts you to sleep. So just pay attention here, and then we'll go to the Lord's table. Um, Jacob said God was his shepherd. And of course, when we read in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, this is a description Jesus uses for himself. But Jesus doesn't just say, I'm a shepherd. What does he say? He says, I am the good shepherd. And then he says this, the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Why can you follow Jesus? Why can you trust him with your life? 
Because Jesus, the good shepherd, laid down his life for you and I so that our sins are forgiven. And he rose from the dead, so he's defeated death. That's our shepherd, and he's a good shepherd. And in chapter 10, it says that he came to give us life, abundant life. Now, you know, if someone promises us abundant life, sometimes we think, oh, good, that means I'll get the fishing boat I want, the trip to Europe, and, you know, that's what we think. But you have to read the whole story. So in the Gospel of John... The night before he's betrayed and arrested and crucified, this is what he tells his disciples. He says, you guys, some bad things are coming. You're going to be scattered. And he tells them this. In this world, you will have what? Trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Now think about when he's saying this. Jesus is telling his disciples, I have overcome the world. And moments later, he will be betrayed arrested, falsely accused, and crucified. And you would look at that and say, that really doesn't look like overcoming the world to me at all. But of course, what happened three days after he was put in the tomb? He rose from the dead. Our sins are forgiven. Death is defeated. That's what it looks like to overcome the world. And Jesus promised us, his followers, in this world you will experience trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So in your family, in your conflicts, your disappointments, the things that you wish you had done differently, the things that, where you were treated poorly and evilly and all of that kind of stuff, be encouraged. God is present in your family, even in the midst of conflict. God keeps all of his promises. God is your shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd who laid down his life for you. You can follow him. In this world, which is filled with trouble, because he knows all about trouble, and he has overcome the world, and he's the one you follow. And I find these stories of Jacob encouraging because, I mean, like you, I think, I can recognize bad decisions I've made and times that I have been mistreated and times that I have wondered, what is God doing? Why did he let that happen? He could have stopped it. But again, God's promises were kept, his blessings endured, and he was present the whole time. Well, we're sure grateful you joined us today. We pray that this message was encouraging for you. We want to encourage you this week to spend some time in the Word of God, to spend some time in prayer, asking God, how can I be more like you? We believe that the things that we fill ourselves up with are the things that we become. And so the more time we spend with God, the more time we love God and give our time to God and pray with God and read his scripture, the more we become like him. And what a wonderful thought that is. Have a blessed day.